Let's put aside any distractions as best as we can so that we can give of our hearts and our attention to God's word today. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is John. I'm a pastor at HMCC of Tangerang, and it's my privilege to preach the word of God for us. Um, <clears throat> I just have a little bit of a cough, and I just want to assure you that uh, it's not COVID, and our family has recovered from this, uh, this infection, and so I just have a remainder of a, of a little cough, so... I'll try to keep my voice close, <laughs> and uh, pray that it won't be distracting. <clears throat> Today we'll be continuing in the sermon series, studying through the Gospel of Luke, in order to rediscover Jesus. And for some of us, to discover Jesus for the first time, to learn who he is, what he did, and what it has to do with our lives today. Last time we saw how the disciples of Jesus were in need of correction and guidance. Their sense of privilege as Jesus' disciples were, was quickly turning into pride, and we saw how we could easily fall into such destructive tendencies as well when we, when we don't fix our eyes on Christ, whether it's the tendency to exalt ourselves or a tendency to be exclusive or both. Today, we'll see how the disciples are still in need of correction, and, today, and the lesson at hand will be on mercy. And we won't necessarily see the word mercy in today's text, but we will definitely see the various actions of mercy lived out in Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at today's passage. We're at Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. Please follow along as I read. <clears throat> when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. It's the word of God. Amen. I don't know if you know this game called Mercy, but it's a game that I played, used, that I used to play growing up as a kid, because back then there weren't as many video games and phones and tablets to play on. So we used to play this game called Mercy, and it's actually a terrible game. Mercy is a game of strength, skill, endurance, and pain tolerance. The game is played by two players who grasp each other's hands with interlocked fingers, and the goal is to twist the opponent's hands bend the opponent's fingers until the opponent cannot handle the pain anymore and surrenders. And to surrender, the loser has to cry out, mercy, mercy, mercy. And the winner will eventually let go. Ironically, playing a game called mercy, as kids, we were not merciful to one another, but rather merciless, where we enjoy the suffering, pain, and humiliation beating and winning over another person. And obviously, this is not, it's a humorous example, but it's not true mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is quite a big concept because it's actually a package of a lot of great, honorable, noble qualities. Mercy is a package of kindness, compassion, gentleness, forgiveness, love, care, all of that is packed into one word, mercy. And true mercy is given at a great cost to the giver and for the great benefit of an undeserving receiver. And when someone is merciful, it describes how kind and how loving, how gentle and caring someone is to, to, to a receiver who is undeserving of all of that mercy. But on the other hand, when someone is merciless, it describes how cruel, hateful, heartless, unforgiving that person is to another. And this is often how people interact with one another in our world, especially when they hurt one another and sin against each other. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to find true mercy between two sinners. We may have experienced a time when we made a mistake and we were in a position to ask for mercy. We were in a position where we needed care and concern and forgiveness and gentleness because we, felt that, because we have felt that we, ex we should expect the consequences that we deserve for our mistakes. 
That's how relationships operate often in our broken world. But only through Christ can we, can we receive true mercy. Because only Christ offers undeserving sinners mercy by suffering our consequences for us. By suffering in our place. And receiving Jesus' mercy changes everything about ourselves. It transforms us from a merciless people to a merciful people. Only when we experience the mercy of Jesus for ourselves will then be able to be merciful toward others. So the one thing for us today is this. Receive the mercy Jesus offers and be merciful like him toward others. Receive the mercy Jesus offers and be merciful like him toward others. We'll look at Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56 in three parts, looking at three ways that Jesus is merciful as highlighted in this text and, and how each of those ways will impact our lives. So first, Jesus resolved to die for undeserving sinners, verse 51. Two, Jesus reached out to those who were avoided by others, verse 52 to 53. And third, Jesus rebuked his disciples for not being merciful, verses 54 to 56. So let's get right into God's word. First, Jesus resolved to die for undeserving sinners. We'll see that in his mercy, Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem to die for our sake according to God's sovereign plan of redemption. Let's read verse 51 again. It says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, <clears throat> he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That phrase, when the days drew near, it already hints at, it already points to the reality that there's a certain plan in motion and that it is going according to schedule. But we see it even more clearly when we look at the literal translation, which would say something like this, when the days were fulfilled for him to be taken up. Meaning, all the time that Jesus has been spending in the area of Galilee, healing the sick, teaching about God's kingdom, preaching the good news, calling disciples to follow him, all of that was fulfilled according to his schedule. But as we have been following Jesus in his, mercy, in his ministry from one place to another, as Jesus <clears throat> was busy traveling, going from one person's request to be healed to another person's request, it may not have seemed that Jesus, it may not seem like Jesus is following a certain schedule or itinerary. I know there are planners among us here that even when you go for a holiday destination, you have your whole trip planned out, mapped out, where on this day you will visit these spots, on that day you will eat at those restaurants, and you'll be like to have it planned and structured. And Jesus' ministry thus far, as we've been following from Luke chapter 4 till, nine, till chapter 9, it may not seem like Jesus is that kind of planner to those details. But verse 51 tells us that he has been on a divine schedule and itinerary. And this means much for us. In fact, from eternity past to his miraculous birth to this moment in time in verse 51, and until he reaches his final destination in his ministry on earth, Jesus is steadfast on, steadfastly on schedule. And now, because Jesus had fulfilled everything he needed to do so far in his ministry in Galilee, he would now continue on to Jerusalem. It says he, would, he, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It, this means that Jesus firmly made the decision to go. It means that Jesus was absolutely set on going. It means that he resolved to go to Jerusalem and he refused to change his mind. We have to be clear here that Jesus didn't set his face. He didn't desire and he didn't resolve to go to Jerusalem just because it was a capital city or just because it was a nice place to do ministry. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem because that is where, according to God's sovereign will, according to this divine schedule and itinerary, Jesus was destined to be taken up. Taken up here refers to Jesus' ascension. So Jerusalem will be the final destination of Jesus' ministry on earth because that's the place where he ascended into heaven. So we could say that Jesus was looking forward to the glory of heaven. We could say that Jesus was looking forward to the joy of being rightfully seated at the right hand of the throne of God as the Son of God. But we know from God's word that Jesus' divine schedule and his itinerary would lead him directly to the cross. 
Before the glory of heaven, Jesus had to face the shame of the cross. Before being highly exalted and given the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Before the glory of heaven, Jesus had to obey the Father's will. Obedient even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And this is why Jesus needed to set his face toward Jerusalem. He needed to be resolved because this journey to his ascension would be a terrible and agonizing one. He had the greatest horrors of earth planned, waiting for him. Jesus would be betrayed by his inner circle for a bag of money. He would be unjustly arrested, put on trial, condemned as a criminal when he was innocent. He would be then tortured, beaten, mocked with a thorn of crowns placed on his head. He then will be nailed to the cross among sinners and evildoers, killed, and he will be in, as he breathed his last breath. Knowing all that was coming for him, Jesus was desperately in prayer in the garden before these horrors would soon become a reality. He prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But still, Jesus remained resolved. He refused to change his mind because with the very next breath, he prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And like a lamb that is led to its slaughter, uh, to the slaughter is silent, Jesus did not open his mouth. He did not retaliate as he was pierced for our sins. It is great comfort and encouragement to know that none of this was by accident. None of this caught Jesus by surprise. In fact, he knew the cross was coming. And he all the more resolved to go to endure the suffering and shame of the cross, all for the sake of sinners like you and me, for our sake that we could be saved by faith in him alone. This is the precious, tender mercy that Jesus offers to sinners. And so how do we personally receive it? Not only, not only are we encouraged and comforted, but we must personally continue to receive Jesus' mercy. How does his mercy become personal for each one of us here today? Simply, we receive Jesus' mercy by faith as we confess that we are the very sinners that Jesus was resolved to die for. When we confess and acknowledge that we are the unworthy, wicked, undeserving sinners that are in such desperate need of his mercy. We receive his kindness and compassion, his gentleness, his care, and his concern, all in the act of repentance, repentance of our sins. Without trying to hide our sin, without trying to justify ourselves before God, without trying to earn his mercy or his favor. Rather, being secure in Jesus' mercy, we, as we acknowledge our sinfulness, we continue to make efforts to discern how sinful we really are. This is a mark of one who has received his mercy because we are secure in Jesus' mercy. And as each day we realize more and more sinful, we realize the depth of our sins, then we are confident that we can ask and receive all the more the greatness and the riches and the depths of his mercy for us. Being secure in Jesus' mercy this way, we can even ask for and invite accountability into our lives from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We are secure not in the fact that we are sinless and that we have, nothing, that we have no sins to hide, but we are secure in Jesus' mercy and we ask for accountability. We share so that we can have fellow brothers and sisters pray for our specific struggles with specific sins. Who, and we ask them to call, call us out gently, lovingly, with great care and concern, to call us out on those sins. This is why together we sing that song, His Mercy is More. As we ponder, as we wonder at the greatness and the depths of Jesus' mercy, we also sing... He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, there are many. His mercy is more. This means that as we discover what sin remains in our hearts that are yet to be discovered, 
We confess that we are the weakest. We are the vilest. We are the poor. We all the more confident and secure in his mercy, we can cry out to God saying, Lord, this is my hidden sin. We can say, Lord, this is my secret sin that I confess to you and to fellow members in the church. We can cry out to the Lord with confidence, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, knowing that he is faithful to pour out his mercy upon us, all because Jesus was resolved to go to the cross, because Jesus accomplished his work, dying in our place and resurrecting three days again. And as we cry out for mercy in repentance over and over again, we can be fully assured with great hope that Jesus will cover us with his sweet mercy over and over again. By faith, we must repent and receive the mercy of Jesus Christ each and every day. This is also how we overcome the temptation to think that God is perhaps dealing harshly with us. Sometimes we wonder when we're going through an unexpected struggle or difficulty that, that we didn't plan for, that we didn't expect, our minds are quick to doubt and wonder, is God dealing harshly with me? Especially as we're struggling in personal issues that don't seem to get resolved, as, especially as we find our hearts growing bitter against God and his people, how we overcome such false thinking, such temptations, is by preaching the gospel of God's mercy to ourselves and again and again. As we remember the good news for ourselves again, we, we repent of our sins. And through that faithful act of repentance, acknowledging that we are wicked, unworthy, undeserving sinners, we receive more of God's kindness, more of his compassion that leads us even more to repentance. And we, we will see God's mercy melt our cold, bitter hearts that have been hardened by our sin. So as we look to Jesus' mercy and how he was resolved, this is how we see Jesus' mercy in his resolve to die for sinners. Second, in verses 52 to 53, we see how Jesus reached out to those who were avoided by others. We'll see that in his mercy, Jesus reached out to Samaritans a people who were hated, a people who were shown no mercy by any other Jew. Let's read again verses 52 to 53. It says this, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans <clears throat> to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. As Jesus begins his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, there are two interesting details I want us to note. The first interesting detail is in verse 52, where he sends people ahead of him to this first designated stop in his journey to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly who was sent, but whoever they were, they were sent as messengers, which gives us a clue to what's happening here. Messengers have the responsibility to make an announcement or deliver a message on behalf of the one who sent them. And the purpose for these messengers says was to make preparations for Jesus. It may have been physical preparations for things like food or housing for Jesus, but it seems here to be actually more than just that. I see these preparations to be more personal and a matter of the heart. Just like how Jesus would send out 72 of his disciples ahead of him later on in Luke chapter 10, Jesus seems to have sent his messengers to this village to prepare and have the Samaritans ready to receive Jesus in all the ways that they could receive him. This, mostly, this most likely involved explaining who Jesus is, probably involved explaining the good news that Jesus has been preaching, and even inviting the Samaritans to receive Jesus as they have received him. But we, but we know that this would have been extremely difficult to do, knowing the background conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews, which leads us to the second interesting detail. The second detail that we have to note here is the fact that the first stop Jesus wants to make is at a village of the Samaritans. And Jesus here is going where no other Jew would go, bringing along other Jews with him. Now, if you're considering the shortest route, 
possible from Galilee to Jerusalem, then it would make sense that Jesus is going through Samaria. If you take a look at this map, the Sea of Galilee is on the top right corner in the north. I know it's a little bit hard to see, but the top right corner in the north, that body of water. And Jerusalem is at the bottom, toward the south. And in the middle, circled in purple there, is the land of Samaria. So if Jesus and the disciples typed in Jerusalem into their Google Maps, it would show three possible routes that they could take to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. The white-colored path down in the middle is the most direct route, and it's the fastest route. It would take about three days to travel by foot. But to be clear, Jesus here is not going into Samaria just because he wants to go straight to Jerusalem right away. He actually enters into Jerusalem 10 chapters later in Luke chapter 19, taking weeks and months before the appointed time of his crucifixion. So as far as we know, Jesus going through Samaria was not a matter, going to Samaria was not a matter of quickly passing through. Still, it's strange that Jesus wants to directly enter this particular village of the Samaritans. Jews would normally avoid this route entirely to avoid Samaria. They would rather take the roundabout ways uh, roundabout routes, either to the east, <clears throat> which meant that they had to cross the Jordan River twice, or take the route to the west, which added even more days to the trip. But still, Jews were willing to take these routes to avoid the risk of meeting Samaritans entirely. And why exactly all this trouble to avoid Samari Samaritans? It's because Jews had no mercy. They were merciless toward the Samaritans, and they would not even interact with them. The Samaritans were a mixed race of Jews who had intermarried in, in generations past with a foreign pagan nation. And as a result, they were led astray from the worship of God. They mixed their worship of God with religious practices of pagan worship of the foreign, lowercase g, gods of those foreign nations. And so Samaritans were a divergent sect of Judaism, who had their own views of the Messiah and their own view of worship. And the Samaritans claimed that their mountain in their region, Mount Gerizim, was the place of true worship of God. If you remember the conversation that Jesus had in an earlier time with a Samaritan woman at the well <clears throat> in John chapter 4, this is the very issue that the woman brought up. She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you say that in, that, is, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And this was a serious issue for both sides. It was serious enough that Jews saw Samaritans as unclean sinners, unworthy of mercy, and they hated them so much. They hated them so much that calling someone a Samaritan was their curse word for Jews. When Jews, we see this, when Jews become so angry with Jesus at one time in his ministry, they didn't know what else to call him. They just called him, you, you Samaritan, as a way to curse Jesus. Merciless toward them, Jews would avoid, because of this, avoid Samaritans at all costs. On the other side of the issue, the issue was serious enough for Samaritans that they wanted nothing to do with Jews as well. And it is no surprise then, in verse 53, as Jesus drew closer to the village, that the Samaritans did not receive him. The Samaritans rejected him, but it's no surprise. It was the same reason they would reject any other Jew. Samaritans denied Jerusalem as the place of worship, so they did not receive Jesus because he was a Jew and he wanted to go to Jerusalem. So we have to wonder here with these details, if everybody, including Jesus, knew he would be rejected, why would this Samaritan village be included on the journey to Jerusalem? Why would this be the first noted stop? There are two reasons that I see. First is reason is that Jesus is unlike any other Jew. Jesus showed mercy to this village of Samaritans, unlike any other Jew who were just simply merciless against them. And in fact, unlike any other person, Jesus showed mercy to people who were hated and avoided by society. He would sit with such people. He would eat with them. He would spend time with the people that the world considered as the weakest, the vilest, the poor. We saw this in how Jesus honored children. 
We saw this in how Jesus uplifted women who were considered second-class citizens back then. Jesus uplifted women. We see Jesus reclining at table with sinners. How merciful he was with sinners. While everyone else would avoid them, Jesus would receive them into his life and enter into theirs. That's the first reason. The second reason why Jesus would stop at this village of, of Samaritans is because Jesus desires his disciples to learn his mercy. We'll touch upon this briefly now as we dive into this more in, this, in the next part. But it's obvious that this interaction would not benefit the Samaritans for now with Jesus. But it was for the benefit of his disciples. Through the messengers he sent ahead to the village, Yes, Jesus was extending his mercy, but he was also including his disciples to learn his mercy, to learn to be merciful with the Samaritans, teaching them to be merciful to the very people that everyone else that they knew growing up hated and avoided and had no mercy for. This is important for all of us as Jesus' disciples to understand for today. Because if we think about it, who do we naturally choose to show kindness and compassion and care and concern for. We choose to be merciful in these ways to those who are most similar to us. We are merciful to those in our inner circle of friends, to those who show mercy, care, and concern for us. When it's comfortable for us to show mercy, we will show mercy. When it's beneficial for us to show kindness, we will show kindness. But as we know, this, and we must confess, this kind of mercy is a flawed mercy. It's a false mercy. True mercy is in Jesus, and we see it as he was merciful to all kinds of people, especially to those who were undeserving, who were, who were considered undeserving, and who were actually undeserving. But as they were in desperate need of mercy from him, Jesus went to show his mercy to them. And the world would soon be trans begin to be transformed when his disciples will learn this lesson of his mercy and then carry his mercy to the lost. Even though at this point in time, Jesus was rejected, we see that Jesus would continue to extend his mercy through his disciples that he would send to them after his ascension. As he, before just before he ascended into heaven, he told them, he gathered them, and he told them, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, it's obvious, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we know from the account, from the account of Scripture in Acts chapter 8 that the gospel eventually does reach Samaria through disciples, where even in the face of persecution and to the threat to their own law and at the threat of their own lives, they would bring the mercy of Jesus to the people who were hated and avoided. So for us today, understanding that we have a false understanding, view of mercy and kindness and compassion, as we look at the true mercy in Jesus Christ, we need to address this again. We, we touched upon it in our evangelism sermon series, but as we, we, as we find ourselves unmotivated and discouraged in our evangelism, Discourage in our responsibility to proclaim the gospel, to persuade others to put their trust in Jesus. We must be motivated again and again by nothing other than God's mercy for undeserving sinners like us. God's mercy, as we receive it, as we see, as we acknowledge our, how un unworthy we are of His mercy, but yet as we receive the riches of the mercy that He has for us in Christ. God's mercy moves us to faithfully carry out his mission, to faithfully persevere in our efforts in evangelism as his messengers. In other words, Jesus is sending us to go and tell about his mercy to the lost, to go and bring his mercy to them. So we must think, who are the people God has placed in your life who are shown no mercy by others? in society, who are avoided by others, who are even hated by others, who are such people that somehow God has placed in your life, in his divine 
timing, and schedule. Only by experiencing the depths of God's mercy can we as God's people go to them. To willingly, patiently, gently, compassionately go to those who have not yet received Jesus as as their Lord and Savior. Because such people will never be able to experience the true mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ apart from Him. So may we as recipients of mercy go mercifully to tell of Jesus' mercy to those who have never experienced such mercy before. So here we saw how Jesus reached out to those who were avoided by others and how the lessons of mercy now uh, and the lessons of mercy now will become much more direct for us in this final point as we see Jesus re- as we see how Jesus rebuked his disciples for not being merciful in verses 54 to 56. We'll see that in his mercy Jesus rebuked his disciples who called for immediate judgment for Jesus delayed judgment until his second coming. Let's read verses 54 to 56 again. It says this, And when his disciples James and John saw it, (coughs) they said, Lord, (coughs) do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. So while we are here today learning the lesson of Jesus' mercy from this situation, James and John at this point seems to be missing out clearly. In verse 54, as they saw it, it is referring to the rejection of Jesus by the Samaritans. So they somehow seems that they, uh, Jesus and the rest of the disciples caught up to the messengers that were sent ahead of them. And as James and John specifically are getting closer in the village now in their sight, somehow they saw that they, the Samaritans, were not receiving Jesus. And right away, their reaction, their reaction is merciless. Their reaction is revenge and destruction. Jesus had called, nicknamed these two brothers, the sons of thunder. And we get a glimpse of why this was so. They're volatile, temperamental, and so angry in this situation that they would call upon, that they would suggest such a serious, make such a serious suggestion to Jesus. On one hand, I think their reaction is understandable. Remember that these two brothers, along with Peter, were the ones with the privilege to see the transfiguration of Jesus. They literally had a mountaintop experience of glory with Jesus as they witnessed the fullness of Jesus' glory. They saw the lesson there was that Jesus is the glory of God and that therefore Jesus is greater than any prophet that they had ever, ever known, even in the Old Testament scriptures. Greater than any prophet because Jesus was God the Son. And yes, even greater than the great prophet Elijah. And if you know the stories of Elijah in the Old Testament, he was the prophet known for calling down fire from heaven. The first time Elijah called down fire from heaven was when he was proving to the false disciple, a false prophet's the prophets of Baal, that the God of Israel is the one true God. If you know this dramatic story, he set up an altar for sacrifice. And then he ordered jars and jars of water to be poured over the altar until it was completely soaked and drenched, until even the, the trenches around the altar were filled with water. And then he prayed to God. These false prophets of Baal could not call upon fire. But when Elijah lifted up a simple prayer to God, God sent fire from heaven that completely burned up the offering, completely burned up the altar, and even consuming all the water around it. This was to show how great God is, and therefore Elijah was known to be a great prophet of the great, most high God. The second time, Elijah, so he didn't just do this once, call down fire from heaven, is another dramatic story, but this time in the same area in the region of Samaria. There was an evil king, Ahab, and it's a sadistic kind of humorous story where King Ahab sent soldiers in three squads of 50 soldiers each 
to capture Elijah because he hated him. And so when the first squad commanded Elijah to come down with them to Ahab, Elijah said, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And that's exactly what happened. Fire from heaven came down and consumed the entire squad of 50 soldiers. In response, what did King Ahab do? He sent a second squad of 50 soldiers. And again, they commanded Elijah to come down with them. And again, Elijah said, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And again, fire from heaven came down and consumed the soldiers. King Ahab, still stubborn, sent a third squad of 50 soldiers. But this time, this captain probably heard what was going on. He fell on his knees. He begged Elijah, just please, will you come with us? Please, we don't want to die. Just come with us to King Ahab. And so James and John, probably remembering these stories of the Old Testament, remembering and and now learning that Jesus is even greater than the great prophet Elijah, They were probably thinking Jesus could easily send fire from heaven to consume anybody who would reject him. Coming down from the mountain of of the transfiguration, they seem to have understood Jesus' journey to Jerusalem not as a journey of mercy, but rather as a victorious march of their Savior King to go and overtake Jerusalem and anyone who would get in their way. So it's understandable. On one hand, There were really loyal servants of King Jesus. And because they really hated the Samaritans, and now even more so for rejecting their king, their Messiah, in their minds, any rebel, any enemy, anyone who would offend their king, Jesus, should be punished. And so they were offended on Jesus' behalf. That's why they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want this? But on the other hand, their reaction is ridiculous. Because what's the rest of their question? The rest of their question is this, do you want us to tell fire to come down and consume them? They still seem to be on their obsession of being the greatest, just from the the verses before. Still on this power trip, They could not even cast out a demon from a boy previously. They were rebuked by Jesus for their deficient faith before. And now somehow in their their response, seeing the rejection of Jesus, they somehow think that they have the power to tell fire, to command fire to come down from heaven. There's no way they could even think about, they could think that they could do this, except if they were driven so much by their pride. Except if they were driven so much by hatred and their merciless desire for destruction on this entire village of Samaritans, this entire village of families and friends and children, it's clear they had a completely different picture of the journey to Jerusalem than what Jesus had in mind. Jesus had in mind a journey of mercy. James and John had in mind a massacre, a merciless massacre thinking this was a victorious march to the holy city and they would conquer and destroy whoever gets in their way. While Jesus was resolved to go die on the cross for the sake of sinners to be saved, James and John were resolved to set fire to this village. It's like they were declaring to anyone who got in their way, accept Jesus or we'll kill you. This is not mercy. This is not evangelism. This is not gospel preaching. This is merciless terrorism. Even more so, foolish because James and John claim to know the agenda of heaven. They thought the agenda of heaven is to consume, burn, destroy the enemies of God. This is how every other kingdom operates, to be the greatest. And perhaps they were thinking that way. For every other earthly kingdom, to be the greatest, it's by the way of war. It's by the way of power or force but it's not so with God's kingdom because our king, Jesus Christ, operates with mercy. His agenda is mercy. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he desires that the wicked sinners will turn back from their evil ways, 
from their evil, merciless desires and live. Jesus came not to destroy. He came to, he came to seek and save the lost, to call sinners to repentance. Jesus, our Christ, our King, our Messiah, was resolved to suffer many things, resolved to be rejected, resolved to be killed. And only then, three days later, will our King be raised from the dead and then raised to glory. True servants of Jesus must be aligned with Jesus' agenda of mercy. If not, whenever we look to the cross, we are rebuked. Yes, still mercifully. Mercifully rebuked, gently and compassionately, but rebuked to learn the way of Jesus' mercy. James and John still, doesn't, still don't understand at this point. So what does Jesus do? Simply, he turned, verse 55, he turned and he rebuked them. With their eyes fixed upon their eyes, face to face, he corrected them, he rebuked them, he taught them to learn his mercy. And they will later realize, and they will, as we all know, in his mercy, Jesus would delay his judgment. It would not be immediate. Rejecting Jesus, the punishment and the judgment for rejecting Jesus will not be immediate like how the disciples demanded. And we know judgment was not immediate because Jesus took the punishment for our sins upon himself at the cross. But judgment will come after the cross, after his resurrection, after his disciples would be commissioned to go into all the world to preach this gospel, to preach Jesus' mercy. After this, there will come a day when Jesus will return from heaven in the same way that he was lifted up to heaven. And when he returns in his second coming, he, then he will come to judge. He will put every single soul in his heavenly courtroom. And those, only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ will be claimed by Jesus as one of his own. Will be claimed as his daughter, his son. Only those who put their faith in Jesus will be judged righteous and then enter into eternal life in heaven, in the glory of Jesus forever. So we have to make sure we understand this, that judgment is still coming. Yes, Jesus delayed judgment, but judgment is still coming. So for those of us who have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, by the mercy of Jesus, I plead, we plead with you to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Because God's word says that he is patient with us now. God's word says that now is a favorable time. That now is the day of salvation. Later will be the day, coming day of judgment. God's word rewards us that this delay in judgment indeed has a time limit. And that this day of judgment will come like a thief. We won't know when it comes. And each will be judged by fire. And for those without faith in Christ will stand helpless in judgment. Because none of our good works are worthy of God's mercy. None of our good works are worthy of God's favor. And so for sinners, without the covering of Jesus' mercy, who remain under the wrath of God, they can only expect an eternal fire of hell, an eternity of torment separated from God forever. And that's why, as a church, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Today is the day of salvation. This is our merciful plea for you. Now, for those of us who say we believe in Jesus, for those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we must also take heed to God's word because here there is also a warning for us because we cannot say that we are a disciple of Jesus but then turn and live without mercy toward others. I hope we see today that there's no such thing as a merciless Christian. Disciples of Jesus must be merciful toward others like how Jesus is merciful to us. 
This is how Jesus has dealt with us, and so we will deal with others in this way. Jesus' mercy transforms us from the inside out, from our merciless nature, our merciless posture, into a merciful one. And when Jesus returns, God's word says, we too will be judged for how we lived out our faith. Specifically, God's word says that we will be judged without mercy if we ourselves have not shown mercy to others. We may find ourselves merciless in many ways. There may, be, there may have been times in your life, like James and John, where we were angry enough at people who have offended us, who have hurt us, who have sinned against us, whether ourselves or our family or friends, that we actually wished for their death. And we specifically are rebuked by Jesus here, directly rebuked by his cross to really consider what his mercy means to you, what his mercy means to us, and to learn his mercy. Other ways we find ourselves merciless is when we withhold forgiveness. It might not be as outward as James and John and outward in this way, but we might find ourselves merciless as we internally withhold forgiveness. When we refuse to care about somebody, when we deal with others even harshly and holding hatred against them in our hearts, we are merciless when we are judgmental against others, thinking the worst of them, gossiping, slandering to ruin their reputation. However we find ourselves merciless, we must take this warning in God's word to heart. We will be judged without mercy if we have not shown mercy to others. I will personally confess that loving those and having mercy, extending mercy to those who have hurt me or my family, forgiving those who have sinned against me, dealing with such people with tenderness and compassion, not trying to just blot them out of my, of my mind, ignoring them, these are extremely difficult things to do. But I hope you see how flawed our mercy is. Because when we deal with our own sin, we find our, we, we, we do wrong, we, we've made a mistake, we go and ask and we beg mercy from God. But when we deal with other sinners who have sinned against us, we are so quick to demand judgment and punishment that they should suffer for the wrong that they have done against us. How flawed our understanding of mercy is. Because there's no way to expect mercy for ourselves and somehow not and choose to not extend mercy to others, no matter what they have done. So as we as disciples of Christ must follow in the example of Jesus, the, example, the way of mercy, and take this warning seriously for ourselves, repenting of our mercilessness as we continue to seek the mercy of Jesus. And as we strive to deal, mer deal mercifully with others, remember that when God deals with sinners, He deals with us with perfect mercy tenderness, care, compassion, steadfast love, patience, that even though we sin against him again and again, his mercy is still more. And so we can learn to persevere in prayer, praying to God to help us learn mercy, praying forgive us, Lord, as we forgive others that have sinned against us, to take away our hearts, mercilessness from our hearts and, and give us a heart of mercy for others. And may we experience how the gospel melts away all judgmentalism, self-righteousness, harshness, and even the desire to force our demands upon others selfishly and sinfully. I've been praying that, that, our, that this church will be the context where we learn to be merciful toward others. In this body of Christ, may we help one another be marked by such mercy, where we deal with one another with gentleness and compassion, where we are slow to judge and quick to see our own sinfulness. And as a spiritual family, may we not be characterized by a people as just silently carrying around baggage, keeping a record of wrongs against one another, only to soon burst in anger like James and John did. Rather, may we be characterized by the mercy of Jesus Christ. 
Mercy is also important, not just in the context of resolving conflict, but mercy is necessary for us to actually build up our church family, to actually move forward. It's not just about righting all the wrongs, but for us to actually move forward, to do the things that God has called us to do, we cannot do without mercy. Without mercy, we will not be able to love one another. Without mercy, we will not be able to serve one another. Without mercy, we will not be able to support each other when they're suffering or even to rejoice as others are rejoicing. So as a church, as a family of God, as Jesus' disciples, may we continue to receive his mercy through repentance. And as we look to the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may we receive his rebuke, his merciful rebukes to us because he is teaching us to be merciful as he is merciful. As we close, there are a few ways that we can respond to God's word this week. Spend time this week reflecting, repenting, and rejoicing. First, reflect. Take time each and every day, will you, this week, to reflect on the mercy of Jesus Christ. See how resolved he was for undeserving sinners like you, like me. The pain and suffering he was resolved to go through. Reaching to people who are who were rebellious and enemies of him. <clears throat> and how, while we were still dead in our sin, God, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So take time to reflect on Jesus' mercy. Also take time to repent, to repent of the ways that we have not been merciful toward others. As we reflect on Jesus' mercy, I believe the Holy Spirit will bring to attention the ways that we have been merciless toward others in our lives. And in the ways that we have found ourselves merciless, repent to receive mercy again. May we take the warnings to God of, in God's word to heart to believe in Jesus Christ today if you have not done so already. Because this, today, now is a favorable time of salvation. As believers in Jesus Christ, may we also take his warning to heart as we strive to deal merciful with people in our lives. Because those Without mercy, we'll be judged without mercy. And as we repent, lastly, spend time rejoicing in God's abundant mercies that are made new for us each and every morning. We don't have to be discouraged when we fail to be merciful. But as we look to the mercy of Jesus Christ, we can all the more rejoice. We can all the more be encouraged and again be filled with his mercy and to go in his mercy to bring his mercy to those around us. So as we apply the, God, apply the word of God in our lives this week, remember again the one thing. Receive the mercy Jesus offers and be merciful like him toward others. I'll close us out in prayer before Pastor Eric comes up to lead us in response. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Pray that your word will just cut deep into our hearts and grow us in our confidence in your mercy, in our, in, our, in our security in your mercy, Lord. As your word says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new 